0: Hello and welcome to the broadcast, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, wishing you a very blessed Holy Week. It is Spy Wednesday, as we speak right now, so-called because of the conspiracy between Judas and the Jewish leaders to betray our Lord. It is also the last full day of Lent, which ends tomorrow evening, Holy Thursday, with the evening mass of the Lord's Supper which begins the Easter Triduum. Uh, Holy Thursday, also known as Maundy Thursday in my native England, uh, from the Latin of John 13:33, mandatum novum danobis, a new commandment I give you, words uttered by our Lord to the apostles at the Last Supper. And uh, brought into English, the English like to do that, they make a, they take a, words and bring them into their language and put a Y on the end to make it a nickname (laughs) Maundy Thursday all right uh the triduum though is the anniversary of our redemption and the institution of the holy sacrifice of the mass so um these two are inseparably linked together and with that in mind I have prepared a little video presentation to begin today's program so Richard if you'd be so kind and roll that for us God did not abandon man after his fall into sin, but from the beginning promised him a redeemer. This redeemer was to satisfy for man's sin and reopen to him the gates of heaven. The prophets foretold the coming of the redeemer and many things about his life, death, and triumph. The promised redeemer is Jesus Christ, the son of God, who was born in Bethlehem and was crucified on Mount Calvary. The Son of God became man to redeem us, that is, to suffer and die for our sins. By the sin of Adam and Eve, God was infinitely offended, sanctifying grace was lost to man, and the gates of heaven were closed. By the merits of Jesus Christ, and especially by His death upon the cross, the justice of God was perfectly satisfied, sanctifying grace was restored to man, and the gates of heaven were reopened. The promised Redeemer not only satisfied for the sin of Adam and Eve, but also for the sins of the whole world. This satisfaction for the sin of Adam and Eve, and for the sins of the whole world, was given to God's infinite justice by a sacrifice of infinite value, which was offered by the infinite Son of God. By the sacrifice of the cross, Jesus Christ, the infinite Son of God, paid to the Heavenly Father man's infinite debt of sin. The sacrifice of the cross is the sacrifice of the New Testament, perpetuated in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is the constant renewal of the sacrifice of the cross. To offer sacrifice means to offer God a visible gift, whole and entire. For a sacrifice, three things are required. A visible gift, a priest who offers it to God, and an altar on which it is offered. The perfect sacrifice of all time is the infinite sacrifice of the cross, in which Jesus Christ, the Son of God, offered himself to his heavenly Father for the sins of the whole world. He was the visible gift. He was also the priest who offered, and his cross was the altar. In the sacrifice of the cross, Jesus Christ offered himself in a bloody manner. In the sacrifice of the mass, he offers himself in an unbloody manner. Jesus Christ instituted the sacrifice of the Mass at the Last Supper in the presence of his 12 apostles. Jesus Christ made the sacrifice of the Mass identical with the sacrifice of the cross when he gave his body and blood to his apostles and said to them, This is my body which shall be delivered for you. This is my blood of the New Testament, which shall be shed for many. Do this for a commemoration of me. Jesus Christ gave his apostles and their successors, the bishops and priests of the Catholic Church, the power to change bread and wine into his body and blood when he said, do this for a commemoration of me. sacrifices were offered to God from the beginning of the world. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were types and figures of the infinite sacrifice of the New Testament. The sacrifice of Noah was a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son Isaac in obedience to God's command. Melchizedek, the king of Salem and a priest of the Most High God, offered bread and wine. These figures were all fulfilled by Christ when he instituted the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. The prophet Malachias foretold the sacrifice of the Mass. From the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name is great among the Gentiles. And in every place there is sacrifice, and there is offered to my name a clean oblation. The Bible tells us that the apostles offered the sacrifice of the Mass. The chalice of benediction which we bless? Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break? Is it not the partaking of the body of the Lord? The Bible also tells us that the apostles conferred the power to offer the sacrifice of the mass upon their successors. The bishops and priests of the Catholic Church have the power to offer the sacrifice of the Mass because they are the lawful successors of the Apostles. The principal parts of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass are the Offertory, the Consecration, and the Communion. At the Offertory, the priest offers bread and wine to God. At the Consecration, he changes bread and wine into the Body and Blood of Jesus Christ. At the communion, the priest and the people receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is offered for four great ends, as a sacrifice of praise, as a sacrifice of thanksgiving, as a sacrifice of atonement, and as a sacrifice of prayer. Those who are especially benefited by the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass are the priest who offers it, those who assist at it with devotion, and those for whom it is offered. We should assist at the holy sacrifice of the mass with great piety and devotion, because Jesus Christ becomes really and truly present on the altar by the consecrating power of the priest. The once for all sacrifice of the cross is made present at the holy sacrifice of the Mass. All right. Well, there it is. Now, if you were just listening to the audio, uh, you may have noticed a couple of pauses in the narration. That's uh, where I put scripture verses up on screen, but didn't read them out uh, because it's not part of the, the uh narrative proper. So if, uh, if you just heard the audio, you're interested in seeing it, um, there'll be a link to the video in the show notes for uh, today's podcast. I also shared it on our VMPR Facebook page this morning, so you can check it out there, or you can go to no-nonsensecatholic.com, click on videos, and you'll find it in the Apologetics playlist. So the Easter Triduum, it's the, it's the uh, Mass and the Cross. The, uh, the word Triduum comes from the Latin for three and it's counted from, you know, it's three days, counted from Holy Thursday evening to Good Friday evening, that's day one, and then continuing through Holy Saturday, culminating in the Easter Vigil, Saturday evening, that's day two, and then concludes um, with, you know, goes through Easter and concludes with the evening prayer of Easter on Easter Sunday, so that's day three, and although it's chronologically three days, All of the events from the Last Supper to the agony, to the passion, to the crucifixion, to the burial and the resurrection, all of this constitutes one great liturgical celebration. And it begins and ends with the priesthood, which is instituted at the Last Supper when Christ gives the apostles the power to change bread and wine into his body and blood. And it's fulfilled uh, then when Christ gives the apostles the power to forgive sins, On Easter Sunday evening. Now, Holy Week, of course, um, began with Palm Sunday, the gospel for Palm Sunday, uh, the account of our Lord's passion, just far too much, obviously, for a single podcast. So this year, I wanted to zero in on one potential thing, or, or one single thing, which is a comparison of the denial of Peter and the despair of Judas. Because you have, with, uh, you know, with Peter, you have his denial and then his, his repentance and his conversion. And with, with Judas, you have his, his repentance, his confession, uh, even satisfaction, but ultimate despair. And so we're going to compare those two things as we find them in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18, all four Gospels. And that's important, too, because we understand that Peter is such an important uh, figure in the New Testament. He's, he's mentioned by name almost 200 times. Always heads the list of the apostles for obvious reasons, because he's, he's the prince of the apostles. He's the leader of the apostolic college. And Judas, of course, is always last. And for the same reason that he was the one apostle of them all who was lost. So all of that and more when we come back with lots more No Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back. Round two here on uh, No Nonsense Catholic, our special Holy Week Spy Wednesday broadcast. And we're going to talk about the denial of Peter and the despair of Judas and compare those Two uh, related scriptural episodes. Um, G- uh, scripture tells us that after Jesus' arrest and and this account, it's like I said, it's in Matthew twenty six, Mark fourteen, Luke twenty two, John eighteen. So uh, all across the four Gospels, uh, Gospel says Peter and John followed Jesus at a distance, even to the house of the high priest, in order to see the end. In the courtyard, there was a fire which Peter approached to warm himself. While there. Peter was noticed by one of the maidservants of the high priest. She looked at him and said, This man also was with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. And immediately the cock crew. After a little uh, while, a man coming to Peter exclaimed, Thou also art one of them. But Peter said, O man, I am not. Now after the space of an hour, a certain servant saw Peter pointing him out to the others, affirmed, Surely, Thou art also one of them, for even thy speech doth discover thee. In other words, his Galilean accent gave him away. But Peter swore that he knew not the man. And then the cock crew a second time, and the Lord appeared in the courtyard, and turning, looked at Peter. And that look pierced Peter's heart, and he remembered the words of his divine master. Before the cock crowed twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And the scripture says, he went out and wept bitterly. Now During that fearful night, Jesus was guarded by, in the court by the soldiery who amused themselves by inflicting upon him all manner of insults, the scripture tells us. They spat upon him, blindfolded him, struck him in the face. And then early in the morning, the council assembled to pronounce the sentence of death on Jesus. And then Judas began to be sorry for having betrayed his divine master. And going to the chief priests, he would have given back the 30 pieces of silver that he had received as the price of his treason, saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. But they replied, What is that to us? Look thou to it. Then being filled with remorse and losing all hope, he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and went out and hanged himself with a halter. So there it is, two very different reactions to these dreadful sins against our Lord. And there's so much for us to consider in these episodes, because in truth, all of our sins offend the Lord. And there's a good many commentators uh, today who would suggest that while, uh, or when rather, Judas betrayed Jesus, he was trying to to force our Lord's hand. And he expected a, uh, uh, like the majority of Jews in his day, he was expecting a a military hero, a great champion who was going to, uh, free Israel from the yoke of Rome by force. And of course he knew he, he had these, this power of miracles. And so he assumed that if Jesus was arrested, that he'd finally have no choice, but to reveal publicly his, his true identity and his power and his glory. And the, the scripture knows nothing of that. <laughs> Certainly Judas knew perfectly well that the, uh, uh the majority of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the scribes, bitterly hated Jesus. And he you know, should have foreseen that they'd condemn him to death once they had him in their power. But it was greed for money, according to the scriptures, that, that blinded him and deprived him of his right reason. Uh, the inspired authors tell us Jesus, Judas betrayed the Lord precisely for the money, for the 30 pieces of silver. St. John tells us explicitly that Judas was a thief. So it was only after he'd received the blood money, only after his, his passion his greed had been satisfied uh, and appeased, I should say, that, that he heard the voice of his conscience and started to feel the guilt and the shame of his betrayal. And those 30 pieces of silver that he had so craved, that he'd so longed for, did not give him any pleasure. Bishop Neck says they, that the money burned his fingers and reminded him of his terrible crime. So in, in hope of obtaining uh, peace of mind, And he resolved to return the money to those from whom he had received it. And by openly confessing his guilt, he hoped that the sentence of death would be reversed. Uh, I have sinned, he said. I have sinned by betraying an innocent man for money. But they replied, what is that to us? So not, wait, do you mean he's not guilty? Uh, That he doesn't deserve death? You mean our judgment is a terrible injustice? (laughs) <laughs> they didn't say any of that, did they? No, they said, with, with contempt, they said, what is it to us whether he's innocent or not? You see to it. You reconcile your own conscience as best you can. And they didn't take back the blood money, because to do so, uh, well, it would have been seen as a tacit confession of the injustice of what they'd done, and nothing could have persuaded them uh, to set Jesus free. So when Judas saw that there was nothing that he could do to change the consequences of his betrayal, he fell into despair, and he hanged himself. He committed the sin of suicide and crowned a, a criminal life by a criminal death. In the book of Acts one eighteen, it says that the, the well, what it says is being hanged, he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out. that's St. Peter talking. Uh, and some figure that perhaps the, the rope that he had hanged himself with broke. Or uh, I think there's been conjectured that his body was just left there until you know the, the natural process of putrefaction. He, he just he burst open. So okay, that's you know a terrible image. So let's take a step ba- take a step back. Uh, on Holy Thursday, when our Lord said to his disciples, "All of you shall be scandalized in me this night," Peter refused to even admit the possibility in his own case. He said. Although all shall be scandalized, I will never be scandalized. And in spite of his protest, our our Lord then distinctly tells him, Today, even in this night, before the cock crowed twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And so, of course, it came to pass. And once again, our Lord proved himself to be omniscient, which is to say to be God, because he knew beforehand exactly how many times and exactly at what hour Peter would deny him. And even though he couldn't possibly have seen with his physical eyes, you know, at the time of his trial, what was happening in the courtyard uh, in the high priest's house, he knew what was happening, exactly what was occurring. Now, it was out of the fear uh, of men that Peter lied three times and denied his faith. And the third time, he even swore falsely. So his sin, the sin of Peter, grew and it became more serious, became worse, more grievous every time he committed it. You know, at his first denial, he simply says of the Lord, "I know him not." And the second time, he says, "I know not the man." So disavowing any connection with Jesus, as though it were disgraceful. Oh, I don't. I know not the man. And the third time, he confirms that with an oath. He swore, he didn't know him, and and he, you know, contemptuously calls his Lord and Savior that man, the man as though he didn't even know his name. And this is the same Peter, remember, who just a few hours before said, I will never be scandalized. I will die for you. I will lay down my life for you. Now, there were certainly some mitigating circumstances. I mean, Peter was was thoroughly exhausted. He was overwrought. He was confused. He was frightened. uh, Certainly half out of his mind with grief over the stuff that had already happened that terrible night, much less what was coming. And on top of all that, the moment that he joined the company of those around the fire in uh, the high priest's uh, courtyard, he was in very real danger. And so in his denial, he didn't sin from malice, but from fear, uh, from panic, and and from weakness. And he didn't lose his faith, but outwardly he did deny it. And so what caused Peter's fall? Why? Why? Well, first off, it's because he didn't, you know, it's, it's all it's basic theology 101. He didn't avoid the near occasion of sin, right? At the time of his, his fall, he was associating with the enemies of Christ. Certainly, if he left their company, even perhaps after his first denial, even then, he wouldn't, uh, at least he wouldn't have fallen so far, fallen so low. Book of Ecclesiastes uh, 3.27 says, he that loveth danger shall perish in it. <clears throat> and secondly, he didn't pay enough attention to our Lord's warning. Uh, He said to him, you know, that night, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to sift you as wheat. And he said, "Uh, this night thou shalt deny me thrice. So he he wasn't paying attention to what our Lord was saying and trusting in himself too much. The wall shall be scandalized, yet not I. I will lay down my life for thee, he says. And I submit to you that when he said those words, he meant them. Uh, Peter had a very firm faith in our Lord, and he loved him very much. But he should not have forgotten that he was a mere mortal. He's a weak man, and without God's grace, he could not remain faithful. In fact, just a short time before, when they were walking up the Mount of Olives, Jesus had said to to them, without me, you can do nothing. So so Peter fell, therefore, it was a combination of things, overconfidence, neglecting Jesus' exhortation in the garden that, that very night, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. And and Peter's fall should be a warning to avoid bad companions and the occasions of sin, to remember our weakness and our instability and not to trust too much in ourselves, but rather to humbly ask for the assistance of God's grace. You know, it wasn't without reason that our Lord taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Or St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, he that thinketh himself to stand, let him take heed lest he fall. So the conversion of St. Peter that followed was, was the work of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The rooster crowed immediately after his first denial, and so this was intended as a reminder of our Lord's warning and of his own promise to lay down his life for him, but he didn't pay any attention to it. He was too distracted, And then he fell deeper into sin, which just goes to show that an outward warning is of no use without uh, uh, the inward voice of grace. And so even that second cock crow might not have uh, moved him uh, because he was so distracted if our Lord had not at that very moment appeared and cast his gaze on Peter. Can you imagine having denied Jesus, you know, I don't know him, blah, 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 and then you go, oh, he's, he's standing right there, isn't he? You know, and, and when Jesus' eyes met his, that one look penetrated Peter's soul, gave him the light to see how he had fallen and how grievously he had sinned, and his heart, and more importantly, his will were moved. and he detested his sin, and he bitterly repented of it. So he corresponded with the helping grace that was given to him. He opened his heart to it and obeyed its promptings, and was therefore converted. Remember, that's what Jesus had said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to sift you as wheat, meaning all you, all the apostles. But I've prayed for thee, Peter, that once thou art converted, confirm thy brethren. So um, he obeyed the promptings of grace and was converted, but Judas was also given a great grace there in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he resisted. And as a consequence, he perished in his sins. You know, remember when, when uh, uh, Judas appeared and said, Hail Rabbi, and kissed him, what our Lord responded, Friend, where to art thou come? And that has a deeper meaning than it might appear uh, on the surface. So we'll talk about that and lots more when we return with uh, uh, part three, I guess, of No Nonsense Catholic here on Spy Wednesday, Holy Week, Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stick with us, and we'll be right back. After these messages. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic Spy Wednesday edition this Holy Week of 2021. And we're talking about uh, comparing the denial of Peter and the despair of Judas. We just talked about how when our Lord glanced at Peter, didn't even have to say anything to him, just gave him a look, and Peter was moved to repentance. But now we remember back when Judas betrays him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's arranged with the Sanhedrin that they would send soldiers and temple guards with him, and that he would show them where Jesus and the apostles uh, were staying and that he would come up to Jesus, point out Jesus to them by, by greeting him with a kiss. And so he appears, Judas appears in the garden, says, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, where to art thou come? Now, most modern translations render Matthew 26, 50 as, Friend, why are you here? That is, you know, uh, why have you come here? What have you come here to do? Uh, obviously, Jesus knows that already. Uh, and But why are you here? That would be wherefore art thou come? And he says, where to art thou come? So there's another layer of meaning here, which is often the case in St. John's gospel. There is a sense in which this uh, Jesus is not asking, why have you come here? But rather, what have you come to? He's pointing out Jesus or Judas's rather betrayal of him and that he knows he's being betrayed, and he's giving him an opportunity to repent. And of course, we know he, he didn't. Now, compare that to the repentance of Peter, which is both, you know, it was genuine and, and supernatural. You know, his soul so grieved over his denial, Scripture said that he wept bitterly. He shed these tears of contrition. And his contrition was genuine, but it was also supernatural uh, in this sense, in that it is a, a biblical example of perfect contrition. Uh, He wasn't sorry because he thought, oh, I'm going to go to hell because I betrayed my Lord. He's sorry purely because his sin had offended his beloved Savior, his beloved Lord. And also because, not because of the consequences to him, but the consequences to Jesus, that his his betrayal had increased our Lord's sufferings. As you can imagine, uh, you know, of all our Lord's suffering, how how it must have pained him that Peter, this this highly favored, this uh, chosen apostle, should be ashamed of him and should deny him in such a cowardly way. And Peter repented of his fall uh, from, from perfect love for his divine master, uh, who's you know obviously the Jesus, the countless benefits and graces that Jesus had given him. He had be- betrayed them, and you know he repaid them with such uh, such base ingratitude. And that's, you know, when you look at the Douay Catechism of 1649, right, this is a time when Catholicism was outlawed in England and the the priests had been banished from the country. They're living in exile in Douay in Flanders and where they, you know, they produced the Douay Reims Bible in English for specifically for the English Catholics. And then they also produced in 1649 an English catechism which is, a, I mean, it's, it's terrific. It's, on, it's online. You can find it uh, in PDF form. It's in public domain, obviously, from the 17th century. But it gives uh, this wonderful Q&A catechism, and it's, and it's very apologetic-oriented. It's full of Scripture. And at one point it says, are we obliged as Catholics to stand up for our faith, even if it means that we could lose our, our popularity or our, our position or our property or even our life? And the answer is yes, because of what we owe to Jesus, because of the gratitude that we, we owe him for his many benefits and graces. Also, there's another example here that, that, that should, you, should you or I have the misfortune of falling into mortal sin, that we should do penance at once, like Peter did, just to immediately stir up this perfect contrition in our hearts. And another thing about Peter's repentance is it wasn't passing the way our, our pen, uh, repentance so so often is. You know, according to tradition, Peter's sorrow for his sin uh, oppressed him his whole life. Every time he heard a rooster crow, it would, uh, it would you know, stir up that sense of contrition over sin. That he said his eyes were always red with weeping. If you ever go to the traditional mass, you see the vestments there. There's a vestment that they don't wear in the Novus Ordo anymore. I don't know why. I don't, I, I don't have any evidence that it was ever officially suppressed, But you never see the priests in the Novus Ordo wearing a maniple, right? The maniple is a strip of cloth um, that's the same color and material as the other vestments, but it's worn over the left arm. And you will hear people say, well, the maniple uh, was originally uh, a towel. that The priests would hang it over their arms because, you know, you're saying mass and it gets hot and that, and you'd have something to wipe your brow with, so to speak. Um, Well, people, you know, priests still get hot. And how is it that it it morphed from a, a... uh, handkerchief to to get the sweat off your forehead into this ornate piece of vestment, and I'll tell you why. Because I read books that are written before Vatican II, and the tradition is that the maniple it wasn't about getting sweat off your brow. It's because it was Peter. Peter said mass with a towel over his arm because he couldn't get through mass without weeping. He couldn't, uh, you know, make present. The 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 sacrifice of the cross and and the events of of uh, the, the last supper, without remembering his denial of Christ. And it was it was that that maniple represents the uh, the towel that, with which Peter would wipe his tears, and that's why it was enshrined in the vestments. Okay. The point is that all of his life long he worked for the glory of Jesus Christ, the salvation of souls. He unceasingly preached the gospel until at last he gave up his life for Jesus. Peter, as we know, was crucified, and crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified the same way Jesus was. So his fall was great, but his penance was much greater still. And by his perfect contrition and his lifelong satisfaction, St. Peter has become a model of a penitent sinner, uh, up with with Mary Magdalene as, as the great models uh, peter the priestly model and magdalene the model of the lay person now all of this also shows us something important about the compassion of our lord jesus christ that in the midst of his sufferings being tormented by his enemies unjustly condemned uh, to death that he didn't think about himself but thought of peter and sought to recall him and convert him by his grace. Reminds me of his last words on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Ali, Ali, lama Sabakhtani, he, he, he quotes Psalm 21 to, to, to give this last chance, you know, this last ditch effort to, to those who had, were surrounding the cross. He's going, look, this is the scripture being fulfilled right before your eyes. And they were so blinded because he's saying, listen, I think he's calling for Elijah. Let's Let's wait and see what happens. But in the midst of all of that, he asks pardon for his enemies. He doesn't upbraid Peter. He doesn't punish him. That one look of compassion uh, is enough to make Peter acknowledge his sin and at the same time enkindle in him the hope of forgiveness. It was providence, it was divine wisdom that permitted Peter to fall in that way so that he would become humble. And as the vicar of the good shepherd, uh, that he would be gentle and considerate to his flock. You know, which we see after the resurrection, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And three times he tells him feed my lambs, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. And secondly, of course, God allowed Peter's denial so that all men could learn the mercy of God and the power of grace, and that no sinner should ever give him up to despair. And that, of course, uh, is also, we see the mirror image in Judas. The Gospel of Palm Sunday, I mentioned, is a long account of our Lord's passion in the church. Desires that we approach the thought of what our Lord uh, Jesus suffered that night with genuine compassion. You know, for hours, uh, the Son of God was mocked just mercilessly. He was abused. He was insulted. That rabble struck him with their fists. They tore out his hair. They, They spit in his face. And he bore it all silently and without complaint. You know, St. Bernard began devotion to the holy face because of our Lord's sacred face, full of gentleness, full of grace, that it should be marred with with bruises and and, and dishonored and disfigured. Uh, Truly and terribly was the prophecy of David fulfilled in Psalm 21, I am a worm and no man, the reproach of men and the outcast of the people. And if you contemplate our Savior in this hopeless state of of deep humiliation, you know, you can be tempted to ask, Are you the Christ? You know, art thou the Son of God? Why, Why do you suffer this terrible treatment? And then you realize the answer I suffer for love of you, to make satisfaction for your sins, to give you an example of humility and patience. That's why he tells us that we must deny ourselves and pick up our own cross every day. And all this makes it all the more terrible to contemplate the repentance and confession, but ultimately, even satisfaction, but ultimately despair of Judas. When he saw the consequences of his treachery, his conscience reproached him with this awful thought, I'm I'm guilty, I am guilty of the murder of my Lord. And then Satan, who had taken possession of his heart by reason of stubbornness. Remember at the Last Supper, Jesus tells him, you know, what you do, what you must do, go and do quickly. And it says Satan entered into him. And it was because of his stubbornness. It was because of him choosing to to betray our Lord. And Satan entered into him over that. And that's what drove him to despair. Before that betrayal was done, the devil had persuaded Judas to sin blinding him uh, so that he wasn't conscious of the atrocity of the, this crime, nor to consider the consequences. But then once the sin was committed, then Satan showed him the full horror of it and, and whispered to him the way that he once whispered to Cain, this, this, this sin of yours is too great to be forgiven. And he does the same with us. But you know, Judas might have obtained pardon even then, even then, if he'd only had the proper dispositions. Scripture says he repented himself. Theologians tell us that he, made a, he really made a, a good resolution of amendment, that he would never have committed that sin again for any price. And he confessed his guilt with the words, I, be, I have sinned, I have betrayed innocent blood. And he made what satisfaction he could. He gave back the blood money, and he tried to get the sentence of death reversed. But, but for all of this, he was without true penance. Now, what did he lack? We'll answer that question when we come back uh, with lots more uh, on No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm Matthew Arnold. Thanks for being with us. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back after this. back. No Nonsense Catholic Man, this hour has flown by. We're talking about the despair of Judas and how he might have been pardoned even after everything he'd done except for the one thing that he lacked, that he did not have true penance because the sorrow of Judas was lacking in hope. And that kind of sorrow doesn't lead back to God, but leads to despair and to eternal separation from God. Judas's sin And betraying our Lord was a terrible, grievous, mortal sin. But the worst sin he committed was not betraying our Lord, but despairing of his mercy, despairing of the grace and mercy of God. His first sin might have found forgiveness, but there exists no forgiveness for the sin of despair, because the person who despairs of God's pardon denies the infinite mercy of God and cannot therefore benefit by it to despair of god's mercy that's that's the one of the sins against the holy ghost jesus said uh, of these sins that they will not be forgiven either in this life or in the next the world to come and jesus judas's rather confession of sin didn't do him any good you know if he'd thrown himself at our lord's feet and and confessed his guilt to him and implored his forgiveness full of confidence in his savior the way we should go to confession you know, because we know him to be the God of love and mercy, just as Judas did, he will most certainly have obtained that mercy. But as it was, in his despair of God's mercy, he sought consolation from men. And he confessed his guilt merely to the Sanhedrin. And when they rejected him, and, and contemptuously, and laid all the responsibility on him, his last, uh, his last comfort was taken away. And the burden of his guilt was so heavy that he didn't have the courage to bear it any longer. He felt that he had nothing to hope for from heaven and he could find no peace on earth and so he hanged himself between heaven and earth and added to the crime of deicide, the crime of suicide. Now, the church does not condemn those who commit suicide because we cannot know for certain their mental state. We can't know uh, what factors might lessen their culpability. As it is, you know, I mean, the, all the conditions for a mortal sin have to be present. And so we commit them to God's mercy because we don't know their interior state. But suicide is, is a mortal sin against the fifth commandment. It remains a terrible sin. Also, uh, the despair of Judas shows us how continued resistance to grace leads to eternal ruin. You know, our Lord chose Judas to be an apostle. And no doubt he was full of good intentions and and worthy of the choice. But by degrees, he became the cause of great sorrow to his master, you know, as his passions gained more dominion over him. And, And Jesus bore with him and warned him solemnly and repeatedly. And when a year before his death, just after he had promised the blessed sacrament, right, at the synagogue in Capernaum, our Lord gave his apostles the choice whether to leave him or not. And Peter, in the name of the others, confessed his faith in him as Son of God and pledged his allegiance to him. But Jesus answered, "Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil?" And with those words, you know, of course, he was alluding to Judas, and he distinctly pointed out that he would be unfaithful to him, that he'd be a tool of the devil. But Judas kept up the pretense. You know, he stayed with Jesus, hoped to turn his falling of Jesus to his own advantage. And when he lost all hope of an earthly messiahs, so when he realized he's not going to be this conquering hero, and therefore his own dreams of, of power and riches, uh, you know, were lost, he competed, compensated himself for disappointment by frauds and, and thefts. John tells us how he would rob the common purse of the apostles. And so he persisted in sin, and he abused the, the patience and the gentleness and the love of Jesus and instead of being moved by grace and converted, he continued in this evil mode of life. And, and part of the reason that he's an unworthy apostle is that he believed, you know, because his master was so kind that he could just go on sinning with impunity. And he sinned, therefore, against the goodness and mercy of the Lord. That's, there's a name for that. It's called presumption, to, to, to sin with impunity because, all oh, God's so kind. Right? How many Catholics have you known, I mean, even before the pandemic, that, that hardly ever went to, to Mass? Now, you know, and they know, that's a sin against the third commandment, to miss Mass of your own fault. And you say, don't you know that that's a, that's a mortal sin? They say, oh, no, no, it's okay. God knows my heart. Right? That, that doesn't really apply to me. God knows what's in my heart. Or, or, or the, those who rarely go to Mass, but when they do go to Mass, always go to Communion although they never go to confession. You know, don't you know, don't you, don't you realize what St. Paul says about a person who receives the body and blood of our Lord unworthily? That he literally eats and drinks judgment upon himself and says, oh, no, I don't worry about that. God is merciful. My God would never condemn me. God knows what's in my heart. And, you know, what can you say to that except God does know what's in your heart and it's a sin to presume on his mercy. And you look at Judas, presuming on God's mercy, he sins against the goodness and compassion of our Lord. He sinks deeper and deeper, and until at last he sells him the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver, and in the co- <laughs> at the same time barters away his own soul. And when he realizes the consequences of his treachery, his presumption, just like that, changes to despair. God's mercy is indeed infinitely great. But callousness wickedness had grown so large in the heart of that of judas by reason of this long course of, of deceit and hypocrisy he had lost all sense of of what's great and noble you know uh, he couldn't form the idea of god's infinite mercy than which nothing greater or more noble can be imagined and so it was that this once beloved and chosen apostle of jesus became, in the words of St. John, a son of perdition. According to Acts 25, he he went to his own place, which is a euphemism. Uh, uh, We also use another another euphemism. We call it the other place. Jesus, not so euphemistic, he called it the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Gehenna, hell. Now, I know sin's not a popular topic these days, uh, but, you know, we do have Lent for a reason. And listen, the holy name of Jesus means Savior. And he came precisely to save us from our sins. That is what Holy Week is all about. And Judas is the preeminent biblical example of the danger that comes from losing the sense of sin. And we can learn from his dreadful example how sin bears two aspects. Before it's committed, sin seems pleasant and attractive, and, and and so the, the, the foolish sinner scarcely fears it at all. Rather, he expects to be made happy by it. I'm going to indulge in these pleasures, even though I'm, I know they're forbidden, because that's what's going to make me happy. I'm going to follow my bliss. That's the way to live. But hardly is the sin committed than it shows its true colors, which are horrible. And once the sinner has gratified his evil passions... He finds, you know, now it's the morning after. He finds out with dismay that far being far from being happier, he's robbed of his joy because he's lost his peace of conscience, and then he bitterly reproaches himself. Oh man, what was I thinking? For only now does he perceive that sin is in fact the greatest of all evils, and that's how it was with our first parents, and that's how it was with Judas, and there. But for the grace of God and the saving sacrifice of Jesus Christ go you and I. Maybe we have never denied Jesus in so many words, but I suspect in indeed, if not in word, whenever you or I sin willfully, we act as if we're not the disciples of Jesus Christ, as if we knew nothing of his love and his holiness As if we had never promised. you know, There are no baptismal promises. No renewal of those promises. I've never promised fidelity to Jesus Christ. When of course we have. But if. You become like Peter. By our sins. We can also be like him. By our penance. Have I ever. And this is the question. Have I ever bewailed my sins. As bitterly as St. Peter. Now we're coming up on Holy Thursday, and this year I urge you to take time to contemplate how during that long night your Savior was the object of ridicule uh, and the abuse of vulgar and vicious men. He was ill-treated, he was scoffed at, loaded with insults and humiliations. And remember that Jesus, who bore all of this for love of you and for love of me, was and is the incarnate son of God. Take this time to renew your baptismal promises that you will always love him, that you will never despise his holy commandments. And if it is ever your misfortune to fall into a mortal sin, do not follow the example of Judas, who lived in a state of sin until he became hardened by it, but follow the example of Peter, who immediately repented and was converted for good and all never sin by a presumptuous confidence in God's mercy, for by the very fact of his being so infinitely good and merciful, that ought to be enough to make us love him with our whole heart and keep us from ever offending him through our own faults. And that, my friends, is no nonsense. Now, only have a few minutes remaining. I had intended, I didn't, you know, of course, <laughs> my uh, commentary on the scripture has a tendency to to grow longer and, and as, as it proceeds, but uh, I had hoped to uh, share chapter 12 from the second book of The Imitation of Christ, which is the royal way of the Holy Cross. So I'll just give you a couple of, of words from that. Um, he says, this is Thomas Campus. he says, To many, this seems a hard saying. Deny thyself, take up thy cross, and follow Jesus. But it will be much harder to hear that last word, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. For they that at present willingly hear and follow the word of the cross shall not then be afraid of eternal condemnation. The sign of the cross will be in heaven when the Lord shall come to judge. Then all the servants of the cross, who in their lifetime have conformed themselves to him that was crucified, shall come to Christ their judge with great confidence. Think about that. That's, that's Catholic prophecy, that, that the sign of the cross will appear for all to see before the final judgment. And when I look at that cross, am I going to say, Alleluia, Jesus has come to save the world? Or am I going to say, Oh no, Jesus has come to save the world. And so I, I leave you with these, these final words. There's a, a wonderful prayer for fortitude. And uh, I just pray it right now, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Dear Jesus, lay your wounded hand upon my weary head and teach me to have courage in the paths that I must tread. Bless me and bless those whom I love and give us grace to see the crosses bravely borne by us will keep us close to thee. Amen. Well, have a wonderful rest of Holy Week. Have a very blessed Easter. And I look forward to uh, joining you again next week on Easter Wednesday as we enter into the joy of our Lord. In the meantime, may God richly bless you and your family. Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. No Nonsense,